This is a GRDC podcast. As farmers would know very well, there's a lot more to dual purpose cropping than opening and closing the gates to your sheep or cattle at the right time. G'day, I'm Chris Brown. Recently, I had the chance to have a chat with David Harbison from DR Agriculture. David's an advisor working around the Molong area in central West New South Wales. He delivered a really interesting presentation at the GRDC Research Update at Dubbo about all the things you should have done and dusted before the very first animal walks into the crop. In fact, David says planning should start well in advance of even sowing your crop. Oh, well in advance for sure, because what we're trying to do with the grazing cereals is have a understanding of, you know, in real terms, what the feed needs of the business are. Now we talk about this autumn winter feed gap and what we're trying to do is realise when that gap occurs with what class of stock we've got and so how best are we going to try and fill that gap. Now the grazing cereals through the central tableland, central slopes, they've always been there. How well we've done that job has been variable and even of more recent times the grazing cereals have always you know in the dual purpose cropping situation is saying we should be harvesting or you know getting or destocking those at a point in time when the growth stage gets to that sort of Z30 or thereabouts so that we can get good grain recovery. Now the commercial reality of it is at the moment when most clients in that sort of east of Cumnock, Molong, they're probably a bigger, far bigger livestock business than they are a cropping business. And so in some cases we're just continually eating out or setting aside a part of those cropping paddocks that will be eaten out. At a whole farm basis, how much are they actually grazing? Oh, probably not a lot. In terms of dual purpose cereals, and it'll vary as you go east, it'll be a higher percentage. But in per se of Dubbo, I'm going to say probably only 10 to 15% of their total crop would be dual purpose. Now, as you go further west, that might even get less than that. But as you go further east, in some situations, we've got clients that we eat or at least have a graze on every bit of crop we sow. So, mm. you know, it's 100% is being grazed at a certain point. Some of that 100% is then continually grazed out. Others of it is shut up for grain and that might be for marketing grain, for their own grain requirements, filling their own silos, you know, for their own seed retention. Is that a loss of opportunity for those people who are only grazing 10% or even less? In the current environment, it could well be, albeit that we're now assessing what people's ability to stock country is. So right now, with stock prices going very strongly, if you've got excess dry matter being grown, that in itself may create its own hiccups at the back end of the year where we've got such a great amount of biomass, we're having transpiration rates that are above what we'd normally have because we sowed them earlier to eat. And so they might end up running into a water deficit in September, October, which obviously could have grain yield impacts because they sowed too much and weren't able to graze it properly. It's a nice problem to have if that's the case, but normally we would try and marry the grazing needs of the business with a good percentage of that being covered in that feed gap being covered by grazing cereals and a lot of it then being covered by you know, the extra grass and pasture that the general rest of the property grows whilst the stock are on that crop. Mm. And a lot of modelling's been done to say that you know, that's a big contributor to total farm profit when you can get an extra 
you know, growth rate of 12 or 15 kilos of dry matter in some of those pastures over winter because they're not being stocked. And that feed then becomes a wedge into August, September, October. Okay, let's go back to the start of a season. Before you've even sown your crop, you want to do some uh, grazing on your crops. Yes. How important is picking the right variety? The further east you go, it's pretty critical because it allows you to then even get sowing perhaps two or three weeks early. Now, sowing a variety a couple of weeks early is probably not life-threatening. Sowing a variety two months early is a complete disaster. So yes, you've still got to choose your variety and it might be such that you change species, that you, you go for an early grazing barley instead of a main season wheat. Um, if that's your need to grow dry matter or if you're on the very eastern fringe of the slopes, you might even grow oats and plant in February. Now that then creates its own plan forward because the oats might be ready to, if you've got a February plant for oats, it might be ready to graze from April, which then allows you to say, well, my wheat or barley that I sowed in the middle of March, it'll be ready to graze at the start of May. So I can have three to four weeks grazing oats and then they come straight off that and that same stock number or mob can then go straight onto the first grazing of a, a wheat. So instead of having a whole heap of paddocks all coming to grazing at the same time, you've got a staggered plant which allows you to have a staggered graze and then you can you know, rotate through those paddocks. You said in your presentation that it's all about calculations. What are the components of those? What calculation are you making? The first one for me when in this planning phase is understanding what enterprise we've got or when do we need the feed. Now that might be for 500 lambing ewes, it could be that I'm a, uh, a steer trader and all of a sudden I've got, I'm buying someone's August calves from last year, they're going to hit my place at the 1st of March, let's say. I need to make sure that they've got feed in front of them as a trade, you know, perhaps for the next 100, 120 days. So those sort of situations are such that we want to know the class of stock I'm buying or putting onto there, what weight they are. By that I can then default and I use a figure of 3% of body weight as predicted intake. So as an example, if I've got a 250 kilo steer at 3%, that's seven and a half kilos of intake. If I've got a hundred of those steers, I'm eating 750 kilos of dry matter a day. So then I've got to use indicative utilization rates, which for me in cereals, I use 60%. Some might use 70%. It's again, it's that calculations and having a little bit of fudge factor in there that then says, if I need to have 750 kilos of dry matter a day for my mob of steers, allow for an inefficiency in that I may need to be growing 1100 or 1200 kilos or have 1200 kilos of total dry matter in front of me. Mm. Now that's a figure that is then over and above the residual figure that I want to walk off when I've finished grazing that paddock. So it is calculations, it's about knowing what my stock demand is, knowing what my food on offer at the time that they're introduced into the paddock. If I know those two, I can then calculate how long that paddock will last my mob of steers before they have to go onto the next one. And then you make the assumption that there's going to be some growth even while you're grazing that, there will be some dry matter growth occurring and you build that into, will this last 20 days, will this last 32 days before they've got to go to the next paddock? I think you said that you have to obviously have a clear understanding of a goal weight that you're wanting to achieve. Yes, and that's all about again, knowing that you've got the right item 
for the length of time. So in other words, if I wanted to produce a 400 kilo steer that might go into a feedlot, or you know, as an example, let's say I've got to get my steers to 400. If I'm buying, or know I've got 150 days of grazing cereal, I'll budget at least to get a kilo a day growth out of that cereal. It may be such that I can, you know, the real numbers can vary from you know probably 800 grams a day to 1.6 kilos a day, depending on animal performance. But you know, again, it's making some assumptions that if I can grow at a kilo a day. If my target's 400 kilos, I've then got to work back to say, if I'm buying a 250 kilo item steer, I've got to put 150 kilos on that on my 150 days grazing. So if I've only got 70 days graze, I may have to buy a bigger animal to start with. And so yeah. it's just a case of understanding how much dry matter I plan to have for how long, and so therefore I can work back in planning as to what I can buy. I could be, if I've got a growing season that looks like being eight months, I can buy a 220 kilo starter and still accumulate. It does sound like you've got to know what you want to achieve and work back from there to see if it's achievable. Yeah, I mean, some will just say, oh, well, I bought a mob of steers and I'll put them on oats and I'll accept whatever yeah. weights at the end of yeah. the day. Yeah. Now that's you know quite acceptable as well. It just depends on individuals businesses, what their goals are, where that marketing is going to occur. It might be such that they're extending their own calves that they've weaned it, you know, and this year particularly, we've had early weaning occur from July calves that have uh, been weaned even before Christmas and they're four and a half, five months, they're only 150 kilos. So to try and take that item through to that 400 kilos is going to take a lot longer and a lot higher quality feed in the short term because they're only young and developing a rumen to get them through to that weight that might go into a feedlot situation. Mm. But some people might just want a, you know, a, a vela market or some people might be heading off to turn off a 250 kilo steer, buy the 150 kilo ones, they want to get the 250 so that someone else can then take that next step. Next step, yeah. yeah. So some of the practical issues you spoke about uh, were water, where it's situated, what type of water you had, and also, uh, I suppose, even grazing of a paddock. So talk to me about that. Let's do the, the grazing first, because at the end of the day, the locational paddock size, yeah, is, paddock a, size is a critical is a issue, one in yeah. terms of, again, it all reflects on total dry matter grown. So obviously 100 hectares or the likes, it's a huge area to graze. You get grazing inefficiencies unless you've got an absolute large number of stock. So let's bring it back to the, you know, the 40 hectares, and ideally I'd love to see you know, 40 hectares and less as paddocks because I think we can do a far better job of grazing those situations. It's about understanding how much food's going to grow, how well, you know, how many am I required in that mob to then try and get them to walk the whole 40 hectares. Because the danger is with the grazing crops is that they only eat the bit near the, near the water, the, near the water yeah. or near where the stock camps are and mm. they don't go to the other end of the paddock. That's obviously, again, the inefficiencies. And the best returns in grazing crops is eating more of what we grow you know we're trying to do that water obviously is critical and more critical in the probably the the summer forages because we know that you can get hot water you can get water in evaporation rates and in dam supplies can then get limiting and as soon as you get water limiting in a business livestock drink less livestock drinking less means they eat less livestock eating less means they underperform so your goalposts change. Winter cereals and winter crops, generally speaking, are not that water dependent. They in themselves are probably 20 to 25% dry matter, 75 to 80% water. So for every 10 kilos of total crop intake, 
an animal's actually getting about seven and a half or eight litres of water anyway. So that sometimes accounts for some of that water intake and moisture required, but there's still no substitute for good for, quality for good, water. Good quality water. And speaking of which, you may be able to hear the rain on the roof. One point you made uh, was interesting in managing the compaction issue of sheep. You mentioned, I'm sure it was you, mentioned wider row spacings can reduce or help to reduce that issue. Well, it wasn't so much a compaction issue that the wider row spacings, but there is an element of greater grazing efficiency in wider row spacings because they actually walk on more bare ground. Now, I wasn't referring to it as being a compaction issue, but just every time they put the foot down, if it was on, if a crop's on, let's say, 15 centimetre spacings, there's you know a greater chance of them treading on a plant than if that was on 30 centimetre spacings. So they walk on a lot more bare ground on the wider row spacing crops. Now that may fit certainly a lot of more farming gear out on the you know the plains that they're on 25 centimetres or 30 centimetres or a lot of the GPS stuff's on 33 and a third centimetre type things. There's a lot of bare ground in there so then where you have got your crop you know the stock can eat that and are probably eating it at greater efficiency albeit in the total dry matter in the paddock there's far less dry matter on 33 centimetres than there is if it's on 17 or 18 centimetres. Nitrogen has been pointed out by a couple of speakers as an important issue after you've locked the gate. Yes, so certainly. So what have you found? Oh, look, it is. And it means the changing of the business goals. We suddenly go from what's been a livestock dry matter beef or lamb production system into now we're changing feet and we're going straight into a grain production. So the same rules as apply post the closing of the gates as what would in a normal grain crop. If the season allows, we do our monitoring, we're measuring nitrogen levels, typically heading for home, as one would say, for crop yield. Nitrogen is again required to maximise that growth up until flowering, make sure we've got that critical biomass to ensure we get a good flowering. And then obviously grain protein is driven by nitrogen. So if we are not aware of how full the nitrogen bucket is, we can underdo that in a big way and it will cost us yield. There's no point being excessive about it either. That's just got you know potential wastage and you know could be environmental issues that come around from overuse of nitrogen if it's not being used or stored in the profile. So we just want to know what it is. But generally speaking, we would, from a grazing point of view, we would make sure that we haven't limited dry matter production by having good amounts of early nitrogen into the profile. We'd manage that through the grazing and some people will even do a top dressing after a first grazing in order to try and make sure we push that second grazing opportunity and those growth rates to get that extra second dry matter cut or dry matter grazing effect. And then there'd be even more post that grazing event. But most of the nitrogen that goes in an animal during that grazing phase comes out, but we do have a redistribution in the paddock. You know, the plants took it up evenly. We've turned around, put it through an animal and put it back on the ground in hotspots. Now, that obviously is a detriment of nutrient management in the grazing cereal situations because we do create nitrogen hotspots in a paddock that obviously is not there for everybody. But, you know, that's just, we try and balance that by having as good and even grazing as we can over those paddocks. And that again comes back to matching dry matter with stock needs or stock needs for the dry matter we've got so that we do get that distribution as even as we can. A good final point to remember, matching dry matter production as best you can to your stock numbers, water availability and paddock size. David Harbison from DR Agriculture and my name is Chris Brown.